Section 32 of Uther and Agrain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Agrain by Warwick Deeping. Book 3, Chapter 12. Agrain stood and watched Peleus as he knelt in the grass at her feet with his face hidden from her by his hands. She saw the curve of his strong neck, the sweep of his great shoulders. She even counted the steel plates in his shoulder pieces and marked the tinge of gray in his coronal of hair. Calm had come upon her with the trust won by the confessional of the sword. She felt sure of the man in her heart, and eased of a double burden since she had told him the truth and brought him to a declaration of his faith. She knew well from instinct that her honor stood sure in Peleus's heart. Going to him, she bent and touched his head with her hand. Peleus, she said very softly. The man groaned and would not look at her. Mea culpa! Mea culpa, was his cry. Igrine smiled like a young mother as she put his hands from his face with a gradual insistence. It was right that he should kneel to her, but it was also right that she should forgive and forget like a woman. Yet as she stood and held his hands in hers, Peleus hung his head and would not so much as look into her face. He was convicted in his own heart and contrite according to the deep measure of his manhood. Igrine touched his hair softly with her fingers, and there was a great light in her eyes as she bent over him. Come, Peleus, and sit by me under the trees, and I will tell you the whole tale. Never had she seemed so stately, or so superb in Peleus's eyes as she stood before him that morning, strong and sorrowful with the burden of her past. He knelt and looked up at her, knowing himself pardoned, humbled to see love in the ascendant so soon upon her face as she looked down at him from her golden aureole of hair. Am I forgiven? he said. Ah, Peleus, you have shamed me. I am a broken man. He rose up half wearily and stood looking at her as though some mysterious influence had parted them suddenly asunder. So expressive were his eyes that Egrine read a distant anguish in them on the instant and fathomed his thoughts to the troubling of her own heart. Look not so, she said, as though a gulf lay deep between us here. How well should I look at you, Igrine, when you are wife to Galois? Never in my soul. How can that help us? Igrine winced at the words and took refuge in silence. She went and seated herself at the foot of a gnarled oak, Peleus followed her and lay down more than a sword's length away, 
leaving a stretch of green turf between. A thing insignificant in itself, yet full of meaning to the girl's instinctive watchfulness. The man's face, too, was turned from her towards the valley, and she could only see the curve of his cheek and chin as she began to speak to him of that which was in her heart. You know the man Gorlois, she said. Pelias nodded. In Winchester, Gorlois saw my face and straightway pestered me as he had been turned into my shadow. By chance he had rendered me service, and from the favor casually conferred, plucked the right of thrusting his perpetual homage upon me. I trusted Gorlois little from the beginning, and trusted him less as the weeks went by. His eyes frightened me, and his mouth made my soul shiver. The more importunate he grew, the more I began to fear him. Peleus shifted his sword and said nothing. A day came when the man Goloris grew tired of courtesies, and we began said no longer. It was in Radamant's garden. We quarreled, and the man laid hands upon me and crushed me against the wall to thieve a kiss. In my anger, I broke from him and ran into my uncle's house. The same night, I fled to an abbey, the Abbey of St. Helena, and left Winchester in my dress at dawn. Igran could see the muscles of Polyas's jaw standing out, contracted as though his teeth were clenched in an excess of anger. He was breathing deeply through his nostrils, and his hands plucked at the grass with a terse snapping sound. These things pleased Degrine. She went on forthwith. I left Winchester on foot at dawn and traveled towards Sarum, for I heard that Uther the king was there, and it was greatly in my mind, sire, to see his face. An old merchant friend of Radamant's overtook me on the road. At a ford, the horse he had lent me fell, and twisted my ankle. I was carried to Udall's house, and lay abed there many days, learning little to my comfort that Galois had ridden out and was hunting me through the countryside. Recovered of my strain, and fearful of Galois's trackers, I held on for Sarum through the woods, and lodged the same night in a hermitage in a little valley. Here the first piece of craft overtook me, for early in the morning outside the hermitage I saw a knight ride by on a black horse, bearing red harness, and armed at all points like to you. Peleus turned his head for the first time and looked at her as though with some sudden suspicion of what was to follow. Igrain saw something in his dark eyes that made her heart hurry. His face was like the face of a man who fronts a storm of wind and rain, with brows furrowed and eyes half-closed. There was much that was threatening in his look, a subdued, ominous wrath, like a storm nursed in the bosom of a cloud. Ikrain told the whole quaint tale, how she followed Gorlois in faith, how she was led into the forest, bewitched there, 
and made a wife, mesmerized into a false affection for the man by Merlin's craft. It was a grim tale, with a clear color of truth, and credible by reason of its very strangeness. It was sufficient to manifest to Peleus how Igraine's strong love for him had lost her her liberty and made her the victim of a man's lust. When she had ended the tale, Peleus left the grass at her feet and began to pace under the trees like a sentinel on a wall. His scabbard clanged occasionally against his greaves. Masses of young bracken covered the ground between the trees with a rich carpet of green, and his armor shone like red wrath under the wreathing arcs of foliage. His face was dark and moody with the turmoil of thought, but there was no visible agitation upon him, nothing of the aspen, more of the unbending oak. Igrain leant against her tree and watched him with a curious care wondering what would be the outcome of all this silence. Down in the valley, the pool glistened, and she could see Garlet walking in the cottage garden. How different was this child's lot to hers? With what warm philosophy could she have changed Peleus into a shepherd and taken the part of Garlet to herself? Presently, Peleus stayed in his stride through the bracken, and came and stood before her, looking not into her face, but beyond her into the deeps of the wood. Tell me more, Igrine. What more would you hear from me? That which is bitterest of all. God, must I tell you that? Let us both drink it to the dregs. Igrine's face and neck colored rich as one of Garlet's red roses, and she seemed to shrink from the man's eyes behind the quivering sunlight of her hair. She put her hands to her breast and stood in a strain of thought, of struggle against the infinite unfitness of the past. Peleus saw her trouble, and his strong face softened on the instant. He had forgotten milder things in his grappling of the truth. Igrain's red and troubled look revived the finer instincts of his manhood. Never trouble, child, he said. I know enough of Galois to read the rest. But Igrain, as by inspiration, had come by other reasons for telling out the whole to the last pang. She was at pains to justify herself to Peleus nor was she undesirous of inflaming him against Galois, her lord. She had wit enough to grasp the fact that Peleus's wrath might be roused into insurrection against custom and the edicts of the church. A volcanic outburst might throw down the barriers of man and leave her at liberty to choose her lot. Moreover, her hate of Galois an iconoclastic passion, had crushed the reverence of things existing out of her heart. A contemplation of her evil fortune had brought her to the conviction that she was exiled from the sympathies of men. A spiritual bandit driven to compass the instincts of a rebellious soul. 
in her hot impulse for liberty and the justification of her faith, she did not halt from making Peleus feel the full malignity of truth. She neither embellished nor emphasized, but portrayed incidents simply in their glaring nakedness, in a fashion that promised to inflame the man to the very top of her desire. Egrine's cheeks kindled, and she could not look at the man for the words upon her lips. Peleus's face was like the face of a man in torture. The woman's words entered into him like iron. His wrath whistled like a wind, and the very air seemed tainted in his mouth. What a purgatory of passion was let loose into the calm precincts of the place. This burning vault of blue, was it the same as roofed the world of yesterday? The feathery mounts of green dappled with amber. And these flowers, had they not changed with the noon lust of the sun? There was a rank savor of fleshliness over the whole earth, and all life seemed impious, passionate, and unclean. My God, my God! The man's cry shook Igrine from her rage for truth. In her confessional, she had been carried like a bird with the wind. Looking into Peleus's face, she saw that he was in torment, and that her words had smitten him in a fashion other than she had foreseen. It was not wrath that burnt in his eyes, only a deep grieving, a frenzy of shame and anguish that seemed to cry out against her soul. A sudden stupor made her mute. With a great void in her heart, she fell down amid the bracken with a sense of ignominy and abasement, overwhelming her like a deluge. Peleus stood and shut his eyes to the sun. A red glare smote into his brain. Love seemed numb in him, and his blood stagnant. Prayer eluded him like a vapor. Looking out again over wood and valley, the golden haze, the torpor of the trees, mocked him with a lethargy that smiled at the impotence of man. And a grind. He saw her prone beneath the green mist of the fern fronds, lying with her face pillowed on her arms, her hair spread like a golden net over the brown wreckage of the bygone year. To what a pass their love had come. Better, he thought, to have lived a king solitary on a throne than to have wandered into youth again and to give and win such dolor. His face was dark as he stood and looked at the woman's violet surcoat gleaming low under the bracken. How symbolical this attitude seemed of all that had fallen upon his heart. Love cast down upon dead leaves. Igrine had feared his honor. Peleus feared it for another sense as he looked at the woman and felt his pity clamoring for life. He could have given his soul to comfort her 
if no shame could have come upon her name thereby. As it was, some spiritual hand seemed at his throat, stifling aught of love that found impulse on his lips. A superhuman sincerity chilled him into silence and held him in bondage to the truth. A face stared up from the bracken, wan, tearless, and tragic. The wistfulness of the face made him quail within his harness. He knew too well what was in Igrine's heart, and the look that questioned him like the look of a wounded hare. Her eyes searched his face as though to read her doom thereon. There was no whimpering, no noise, no passionate rhetoric. A great quiet seemed to take its temper from the silence of the woods. Peleus. Yes, Igrine. Tell me what is in your heart. Peleus hung his head. He could not look at her for all his courage. She was kneeling in the bracken with her hands crossed over her breast, and her face turned to his with the white wistfulness of a full moon. Peleus felt death in his heart, and he could not speak, nor look into her eyes. Peleus! Child, you do not look at me. Great God, would I were blind! The truth came crying to her like the wild cry of a bird taken by a weasel in the woods. A great sobbing shook her. She fell down and caught Peleus by the knees. Peleus! Peleus! My God, he cried. I stifle. Don't leave me. Don't send me away. What can I say to you? Only look into my eyes again. Peleus put his fists before his face. The girl felt him quiver and he seemed to twist in an agony, like a man dangling on a rope. Igrine's hands crept to his shoulders. She drew herself by his body as by a pillar till her face met his, and she lay heavy upon his breast. Peleus! Her breath was on his lips, and her hair flooded over his hands like golden wine. Peleus! Peleus! The words came with a windless whisper. Have pity, Agrine. I will never leave you. Galois's wife. Never! Never! My God. I am not his. Peleus, take me body and soul. Take me and let me be your wife. How can I sin against your soul, Igrine? Is it sin, then, to love me? You are Goliath's wife before God. There is no God. Igrine, I will have no God but you, Peleus. The man took his hands from his face and looked into Igrine's eyes. A strong shudder passed over him and he seemed like a great ship smitten by a wave, till every fiber groaned and quivered 
in his massive frame. A green calm covered the valley, and the whole world seemed to faint in the golden bosom of the day. Not the twitter of a bird broke the vast hush of the forest. The sunlit aisles climbed into a shadowland of mysterious silence, and an azure quiet hung above the trees. As for Peleus and Agrine, their two lives seemed knotted up with a cord of gold. They had mingled breath and taken the savor of each other's souls. Yet for all the glory of the moment, it was but autumn with them. A pomp of passion, a red splendor dying, while it blazed into the gray ruin of a winter day. Ikrine read her doom in the man's face. It was the face of a martyr, pale, resolute, yet inspired. A dry sob died in her throat, and her hands dropped from the man's shoulders. Peleus stood back and looked at her with a warm light in his dark eyes, the green woods rising behind him like a bank of clouds. Ygrine. She nodded, felt miserable, and said nothing. I cannot love you easily. Igrine's eyes stared at him with a mute bitterness. She was a woman, and thought like a woman. Mere saintly philosophy was beyond her. You are too good a man, Peleus, she said. I would hold my love in my heart like a great pearl in a casket of gold. What comfort is there in mere splendid misery? And in such words. How should I love you best? Ah, Peleus, ask your own heart. The man was an impossible being for mere mortal argument. He seemed to bear spiritual pinions that tantalized the intelligence of the heart. Igrine felt herself adrift and beaten, and she was hopeless of him to the core. Think you I shall be a saint, Peleus, said she, when you have given me back to myself? I shall pray for you. And for a devil! She gave a shrill laugh and twined her hair about her wrist. Ah, oh, Peleus, you know not what you do. Too well, Grine. You are too strong for me, and yet, and yet... I should not have loved you so well if you had not been strong. That is how I think of you, Igrine. You love me more by leaving me. I love you more by keeping you pure before my soul. A great calm had come upon Igrine. She was very pale and firm about the lips, and her eyes were staunch as steel. Her voice was as clear and level as though she spoke of trivial things. I shall not go back to Galois, she said. Beware of the man. Doubtless you would speak to me of a convent. Peleus fell into thought, with his dark eyes fixed upon her face. As a novice, 
Ygraine almost smiled at him. And not a nun? For answer, he spoke three simple words. Goliath might die. The stillness of the woods seemed like the hush of a listening multitude. A blue haze of heat hung over the rolling domes of the western trees, and never a wind wave stirred the long grass. Mountainous clouds sailed radiant over ridge and spur, and it might have been Elysium where souls wandered through meads of asphodel. Ekrine looked long over the valley with its stately trees, its flowering grass and quiet pool in the meadows. She was vastly calm, though her eyes were full of a woe that seemed to well up like water out of her soul. She still twisted and untwisted a strand of her hair about her wrist, but for all else, she was as quiet as one of the trees that stood near and overshadowed her. Peleus, she said. The man came two steps nearer. Go quickly. Ygrine. Man, man, how long will you torture me? I am only a little strong. The calm of tragedy seemed to dissolve away on the instant. Peleus thrust his hands into the air like a swimmer, sinking to his death. His heart answered a grind's exceeding bitter cry. Would that we had never come to this. I cannot say that, though my heart breaks. Peleus fell down and clasped her with his arms about the knees. His face was hidden in the folds of her surcoat. Presently, he loosed his hold, looked up, took a ring from his hand, and thrust it into her palm. The signet of a king, he said. Keep it for Niedergrein. Have you money? I have money, Peleus. God guard you. Ygrine was white to the lips, but she never wavered. Heaven keep you, she said. Her voice was hoarse in her throat, and she began to shiver, as though chilled by a sleety wind. Go quickly, Peleus. For God's sake, hide your face from me. It is death. It is death. He sprang up and left her without a look. Igrine saw him go through the long grass with his hand over his eyes, staggering like one sword smitten to the brain. He never stared back at her, but held straight for the cottage and the cedar tree where his black horse was tethered under the shade. She watched him mount and gallop for the forest, nor did she move till his red harness had died into the gloom of the trees. End of Book 3, Chapter 12 Recorded by Laurie Nadeau Richardson www.laurierichardsonvo.com